Greetings. This is Roger Kimball, the editor and publisher of the New Criterion. It's my pleasure to introduce you to the April 2021 issue of the New Criterion, our annual poetry special. I think that our poetry editor, Adam Kirsch, really outdid himself this year. Not only has he assembled some brilliant new poems, but also a clutch of terrific essays on poetry by William Logan, Daniel Mark Epstein, Rosanna Warren, who writes a fascinating piece about James Merrill's letters, and by Adam himself, a terrific essay on getting poetry. Many of us feel that there's a lot about contemporary poetry, especially that they just don't get. Well, Adam has some very intelligent things to say about all of that. You won't want to miss his essay. And of course, you won't want to miss the April issue in general either. Uh, But to give you a little taste of what's in store, let me read to you our notes and comments this April. The first one is called Racism at Smith. Jesse Smollett, call your office. You remember Jesse Smollett, don't you? He's the black actor who, back in 2019, claimed to have been assaulted by two white men who, in their most dramatic telling, wore ski masks, put a rope around his neck, and doused him in bleach as they chanted MAGA slogans and yelled racist and anti-homosexual slurs. Oh, dear. Another sign of systemic racism, what? Not quite. Once again, it turns out that systemic racism is what you have to rely on when there's no actual racism to be found. Smollett was not attacked by two mask-wearing, MAGA-spouting white men. On the contrary, he paid two black bodybuilders, two brothers whose names I will not attempt to pronounce here, to fake the attack. It was, in short, a politicized publicity stunt intended to prop up a sagging career and enhance the profile of a wannabe celebrity actor. Sound familiar? It's not quite in the league of Tawana Brawley. Brawley, you will remember, was the young black woman who, in 1987, helped put Al Sharpton on the map. She falsely claimed that she had been raped by four white men, including police officers and a prosecutor. The New York Times and other national media were all over that story until a grand jury determined that Brawley, assiduously coached by Sharpton and others, had made up the whole thing, just like Jussie Smollett. And just like the story of the Duke University lacrosse players who, in 2006, were charged with kidnapping and raping a black stripper. The New York Times and kindred organs went to town on that one, too. Quote, the children of privilege feel vividly alive only while victimizing, even torturing, thundered one Times op-ed. Richard Broadhead, Duke's president, displaying the statesmanlike leadership sorely missing in many academic presidents, noted that in America, one is innocent until proven guilty and urged patience and discretion while the investigation proceeded. Broadhead said it, but did he mean it? What he did was to suspend 
an implicated student, fire the lacrosse coach, cancel the rest of the team's season, and pander to every possible interest, but especially to those baying for the heads of the accused. Alas for the narrative, the story was 100% false. The local prosecutor, who had hoped to make a name for himself by going after a bunch of rich white boys, was himself later disbarred, indicted, and jailed. Several years later, Crystal Mangum, the stripper, was found guilty of second-degree murder after she stabbed and killed her boyfriend. There's a moral here, but many guardians of our institutions, determined to discover racism under every stone they turn over, remain oblivious. It is heartening, therefore, to report that the New York Times, for once, has left virtue-mongering to one side in order to report the facts. In a long piece by Michael Powell, the Times reviewed the case of Umu Kanut, a black student at Smith. In the summer of 2018, Kanut was eating lunch in a dorm when a janitor, accompanied by a campus police officer, accosted her and asked what she was doing there. The officer might have been carrying a lethal weapon, Canute recalled, and the encounter, part of what she described as a year-long pattern of harassment, left her near, quote, meltdown. Canute told the whole story on Facebook. All I did was be black, she wrote. It's outrageous that some people question my being at Smith College and my existence overall as a woman of color. Kathleen McCartney, Smith's president, was instantly on the case with apologies and imprecations against racism. Quote, this painful incident reminds us of the ongoing legacy of racism and bias in which people of color are targeted while simply going about the business of their ordinary lives. All the usual media lapdogs, including the New York Times, got in line to bemoan the racist nature of an America where a student could be harassed merely for eating while black. They were less attentive when, three months later, a law firm hired by Smith to investigate the incident reported that it had found no evidence of bias. Canute, it transpired, was sitting in a deserted dormitory that had been closed to students for the summer. The janitor, far from profiling her, was simply doing what he had been told by his boss to do, report to campus police any unauthorized persons he saw in the dorm. He did notice that Canute was black, but he did not mention that to the campus police. Being short-sighted, however, he referred to Canute as he. Canute later complained that in addition to being racially profiled, she had been misgendered. The officer, by the way, was unarmed. For its part, Smith went into full grovel mode. The college called for, quote, reconciliation and healing and instituted anti-bias training for all staff, sensitivity training for the police, and special dormitories for black students and other, quote, students of color. The janitor in question was put on paid leave. White accountability groups were instituted for faculty and staff to explore their implicit biases. But Smith did not, Powell notes, 
offer any public apology or amends to the workers whose lives were gravely disrupted by the student's accusation. This also included a longtime cafeteria worker whose life canute turned upside down with baseless accusations of racism. It costs more than $78,000 per year to attend Smith. That is considerably more than most of the workers who keep Smith open earn, but it is an expensive proposition to maintain a hermetically sealed experiment in identity politics. Back in February, Jody Shaw, a white Smith alum, made headlines when she resigned her administrative position at the college, complaining of anti-white bias. She had posted a video on YouTube in October 2020 in which she decried the racialist atmosphere. Quote, stop demanding that I admit to white privilege and work on my so-called implicit bias as a condition of my continued employment, she said. As Powell reports, Shaw, after repeated clashes with the administration, resigned and appears likely to sue the college, calling it a racially hostile workplace. We were pleased to see Michael Powell's forthright column in the New York Times. It exposed some portion of the racialist fantasy world embraced by elite institutions like Smith. The fact that the story appeared in the Times, itself an institution beholden to those racialist shibboleths, is a good sign. It shows that even now, at the high noon of identity politics, reality counts for something. Perhaps the Times will one day take the next step and remind its readers of the astringent, gimlet-eyed wisdom of Booker T. Washington, a black American who had no time for race-baiting. In his book, My Larger Education, published in 1911, Washington criticizes those blacks he calls problem profiteers. Quote, there is another class of colored people, he wrote, who make a business of keeping the troubles, the wrongs, and the hardships of the Negro race before the public. Having learned that they are able to make a living out of those troubles, they have grown into the settled habit of advertising their wrongs, partly because they want sympathy and partly because it pays. Some of these people do not want the Negro to lose his grievances because they do not want to lose their jobs. We wish someone would send this eminently sane bulletin to the partisans of Black Lives Matter and their many disciples on our college campuses, in our schools, and alas, in the governmental agencies of the United States. The Academic Freedom Alliance Booker T. Washington would have liked the Academic Freedom Alliance, a newly announced group of college faculty dedicated to protecting freedom of expression on campus. The group conceived at Princeton last summer has quickly scaled up into a nationwide network. Although one of its main founders is Robert P. George, himself a conservative professor at Princeton, the alliance is determinedly nonpartisan and includes liberals and progressives as well as conservatives. The actions of the intolerant mob threaten everyone, regardless of political coloration. As a tribe, 
academics are not conspicuous for their courage. They tend to look the other way when colleagues are attacked for expressing opinions that do not pass muster with the wardens of wokeness. The AFA hopes to change that, encouraging its members to act like elephants, not zebras. When hunted by lions, George noted in an interview, herds of zebras fly off in a million directions and the targeted member is easily taken down and destroyed and eaten. Elephants, he said, behave differently. They circle around the vulnerable elephant and protect it. Academics need to do likewise and offer support, legal as well as moral, when one of their number falls victim to the mob. We welcome the Academic Freedom Alliance. Like the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, it may well become a beacon of sanity in the stultifying and tenebrous atmosphere that prevails in American academia today. You can find out more about the Alliance and donate to support its activities at its website, academicfreedom.org. Richard Driehaus, 1942-2021 We note with sorrow the passing of Richard Driehaus, a longtime benefactor of the new criterion. Richard was the genius behind momentum investing, a strategy whose fruits enabled him to become one of America's most important cultural philanthropists. He was especially interested in architecture, an amphibious art form with one foot in the realm of aesthetics, the other in the realm of civic reality. Unlike many of our most celebrated architects and their enablers, Richard understood that the measure of good architecture is the human body, not the ego of the architect. He supported a wide range of classically oriented architectural enterprises, most conspicuously through the Richard H. Driehaus Prize for Classical Architecture, which he established in 2003 in part as an alternative to the Pritzker Architecture Prize, which has tended to specialize in celebrating the trendier precincts of architectural ambition. Richard's generosity supported a great deal of the New Criterion's architectural criticism over the last decade. We are deeply grateful for his support, moral and intellectual as well as material, and we mourn his loss. This is Roger Kimball signing off for the New Criterion. I hope to speak with you again next month.